Dear listener, we hope that you've been enjoying the variety of podcasts that we have on our network. Now is your opportunity to help us by telling us a little more about you. Please visit jcastnetwork.org survey and complete our listener survey so that we can learn more about you and your listening habits. Again, please visit jcastnetwork.org survey. Thanks so much. You are listening to The Stender with Rabbi Michael Knopf, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Rabbi Knopf, please visit mikeknopf.com. For more information about the other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. In 1941, the great mid-century psychologist Eric Frum wrote an extraordinary book called Escape from Freedom. And in it, Frum was trying to investigate and understand the psychology of totalitarianism and submission to totalitarianism. That, after all, was sweeping the world at the time. It was just on uh, the, uh, at the very beginning of World War II, American involvement in World War II, which uh, would not be actually for another year after that. But totalitarianism, fascism, was the dominant theme and the dominant force in the world at the time. And Frum was trying to understand not only where it comes from, but why so many people seem not only willing, but ready to submit to authoritarian regimes, to embrace it even. And in that book, he talks a lot about the whole idea of the book is escape from freedom, that human beings actually have within us a propensity to run away from our own freedom, to be afraid of our own freedom. And we could spend a lot of time unpacking and talking about all of the arguments that Frum makes in his book, but I want to read one passage in particular because I think it's related to our Torah portion and also what's going on in our world right now. In the fight for freedom in modern history, the attention was focused upon combating old forms of authority and restraint. It was natural that one should feel that the more these traditional restraints were eliminated, the more freedom one had gained. We fail sufficiently to recognize, however, that although man has rid himself from old enemies of freedom, new enemies of a different nature have arisen. Enemies which are not essentially external restraints, but internal factors blocking the full realization of the freedom of personality. We believe, for instance, that freedom of worship constitutes one of the final victories for freedom. We do not sufficiently recognize that while it is a victory against those powers of church and state which did not allow man to worship according to his own conscience, the modern individual has lost, to a great extent, the inner capacity to have faith in anything which is not provable by the methods of the natural sciences. Or, to choose another example, and this is what I really want to focus on, we feel that freedom of speech is the freedom of speech is the last step in the march of victory of freedom. We forget 
that although freedom of speech constitutes an important victory in the battle against old restraints, modern man is in a position where much of what he thinks and says are the things that everybody else thinks and says. That he has not acquired the ability to think originally, that is, for himself which alone gives meaning to his claim that nobody can interfere with the expression of his thoughts. Again, we are proud that in his conduct of life, man has become free from external authorities, which tell him what to do and what not to do. We neglect the role of the anonymous authorities, like public opinion and common sense, which are so powerful because of our profound readiness to conform to the expectations everybody has about ourselves and our equally profound fear of being different. In other words, we are fascinated by the growth of freedom from powers outside of ourselves and are blinded to the fact of inner restraints, compulsions, and fears, which tend to undermine the meaning of the victories freedom has won against its traditional enemies. We therefore are prone to think that the problem of freedom is exclusively that of gaining still more freedom of the kind we have gained in the course of modern history, and to believe that the defense of freedom against such powers that deny such freedom is all that is necessary. We forget that although each of the liberties which have been won must be defended with utmost vigor, the problem of freedom is not only a quantitative one, but a qualitative one that we not only have to preserve and increase the traditional freedom, but that we have to gain a new kind of freedom, one which enables us to realize our own individual self, to have faith in this self and in life. So I know that that was a long passage, but I think essentially what Fromm is saying is that there are two kinds of freedoms. There are freedoms from external kinds of compulsions and authorities, from impositions uh, on, of the state on our lives, of restrictions of our own ability to, uh, to express ourselves or to think in, in our own way. And then there are internal compulsions, internal assaults on freedom, which we rarely intuit or fully understand or appreciate. And the example that he gives of freedom of expression being one of those areas in which we actually, even though we live in an era in which the state can't compel what we think or what we say, we nevertheless have all of these other compulsions of what we think and what we say that we never intuit or fully understand. We actually tend, even though we think we think freely and we think we express ourselves freely, we actually end up tending to parrot the views that we hear all around us because there's an internal drive to conform. There's an internal drive to be part of the general discourse of society, to think the things that everybody else is thinking and to say the things that everybody else is saying. I am sure that many of us in this room have heard some of the analysis of uh, the post-election, which I actually think is not really analysis of the election. It's analysis of where we've been as a society for the past decade or two decades, 
since the advance of the internet, which is that we live in a post-truth era, a post-fact era, that what is true is not as important as what people feel and how passionately they feel it and how loud they say it and how often they're willing to repeat it. And what happens in a, in a context, in an environment in which there is not only the brazen expression of untruth, but the unwillingness of people to challenge those untruths as untruths, and maybe even more than an unwillingness to challenge it, but a willingness to accept it as part of the way of life, as part of the uh, general possibility of what people, what is acceptable or appropriate for people to believe and express. That we live in that kind of context, in that kind of climate, and in that kind of climate, authoritarianism, assault on the first kind of freedom, is increasingly possible. Because we give ourselves over to acquiescence, to untruth. We give ourselves over to the delegitimization of fact. I was thinking about that a lot in this context in which we live as, uh, we, as I was studying this week's Torah portion. In this week's Torah portion, there's this incredible scene where Jacob, who had run away from home because of his own untruth, because he posed as his brother Esau and stole Esau's blessing from his father Isaac his, and the birthright. Although the stealing of the birthright wasn't exactly an, exactly an untruth, it was just very sly, where he sold it for some porridge. But the stealing of the blessing was predicated on untruth. So he runs away from home because Esau is angry about this and wants to kill him. And he goes to his mother's homeland of Haran, meets his uncle, Levan, and falls in love with Levan's younger daughter, Rachel, Rachel, and pledges to work for Levan for seven years in order to marry Rachel. And then on the wedding night, Levan switches Rachel for her older sister, Leah. And Jacob doesn't realize that this has happened. And so Leah is brought into him. He consummates the marriage with her. And then in the morning, the Torah says, he wakes up and realizes, this is Leah. And he turns to Levan and he says, why have you done this to me? And Levant says, in our community, digging at uh, what uh, at least the audience knows about Jacob, in our community, it's not our custom to preference the younger over the older. A notion that Jacob leaves virtually unchallenged and simply agrees to work for Levant for another seven years in order to marry Rachel. Now, in contemporary Jewish practice, we have what uh, we would call a tikkun for that encounter. We have a fix 
that we've developed in our practice for exactly that scenario. The fix that we have is in a wedding we have what's called a bedeckin. Right, Xavier and Rachel, you'll learn about this if we haven't. We talked about it a little bit, right? A bedeckin is known as a, is, is a, the Yiddish word for a veiling. And the idea is that it's customary in uh, Jewish practice, as it has been customary for, for uh, centuries in Jewish practice, and was clearly the custom in ancient times, that brides are veiled for their wedding because symbolism. Okay, I'm not going to get into that. Brides are veiled at their weddings, but the custom that Jewish grooms have had since Jacob's time is to lift up the veil before the wedding to make sure that the bride that he or she is, that he is going to marry, it could be she actually, he or she is going to marry, is the bride that he or she intended to marry. That there wasn't a last minute switcheroo that the father of the bride pulled on the groom and then places the veil over the, the, the face of the bride, and they go to the chuppah together. The fix for what happened with Jacob is to lift the veil and to investigate and to check, is this true, or am I being the subject of some kind of deceit? Jacob doesn't do that. Jacob doesn't lift the veil. Jacob assumes, maybe because of social convention, maybe because he doesn't want to disturb the peace in his uncle's household, maybe because he just wants to fit in, maybe because he's trusting, he doesn't check to see whether the bride he's getting is actually the bride that he wanted, despite the fact that She's covered in a veil, and he could be the subject of deceit. In fact, Lavan is known in the Torah and literature as Lavan Ha'arami, Lavan the Aramean. And the rabbis say that Arami is actually a play on the word Ramai, which means deceiver. And he was known as a deceiver. Jacob should have known that there was something fishy potentially going on there, and yet he does not lift the veil. And even afterwards, after he asked Levon what happened, and Levon says, it's not our custom to give away the younger daughter before the older daughter, Jacob did say, well, why didn't you tell me that seven years ago when I asked to marry Rachel? We could have avoided all of this. You didn't tell me the truth. Jacob doesn't challenge him. Jacob doesn't ask him. And so Jacob is the subject of that deceit, that we have to rectify, and we have a practice for rectifying in our tradition today. So much of Jewish practice is based on that tikkun, is based on that fix. One of the central postures of Jewish life is the act of questioning the act of investigating and challenging, of discerning and uncovering truth. The Talmud says that the seal of the Holy Blessing One is truth. That the way we uncover and discover divinity in our world is through the process of determining the truth. 
The central religious act of the rabbinic tradition is midrash, a Hebrew word that means investigation, that we don't accept the Torah at face value, that we dig deep in it because we presume that the truth that it is trying to express is not evident, not self-evident, not readily apparent. We have to dig deep. We have to look behind the veil in order to uncover what it's really trying to teach us, what it's really trying to say to us. And the Torah says, Lo tachil, lo telech rachil be'amecha. You shall not be a talebearer among your people. You should not go about preaching falsehoods. We know, of course, not just Judaism, but all religions teach us not to spread untruths. And there is a moral responsibility on the part of our leaders, our politicians, and on the media to ensure that what they report and what they say is true. But that same verse that says, don't tell stories among your people, then in the next breath says, lo ta'amod al dam recha, and don't stand idly by the blood of your neighbor. In other words, we have an obligation not only not to share untruth, but also not to stand idly by as untruth is shared. That our posture should always be lifting the veil, investigating, going deep within, making sure that what is being expressed is true and that our understanding of it is the right understanding. We live in uncertain times, and we live in confusing times, and we live in times in which there is so much noise and so much information out there coming from so many sources. What I'm offering here is really hard to do, but it's what makes it so important. Because in a context like ours, in which there's so much information out there, it makes it virtually impossible to distinguish truth from falsehood. And it is particularly, precisely in that kind of climate where falsehood festers and where freedoms get assaulted and where people suffer and where oppression can take root. And so our challenge as Jews is not only to ensure that we tell the truth, which I think is a given, but also that we listen for the truth. That we make sure that what is being spoken is the truth. That we challenge and question and always peek behind the veil to ensure that we are not, and none of our fellow human beings are the subject of deceit. That, I think, is one of the secrets of Jewish survival throughout the millennia, is that we don't take things on authority, that we posture ourselves in a posture of questioning, challenging, debate, and investigation, because only then truth can be revealed, and only then God's will and God's presence can be revealed through God's signature, which is truth.